and welcome to the first episode of The Narrative. This is Ali Kurani coming to you from South Lebanon and what this show will basically be is a weekly platform exclusively for Middle Eastern voices from the Middle East bringing you coverage and in-depth analyses of events in the region. Joining me this week is one of the fewest local journalists who continuously visits Lebanon in Syria's active front lines, bringing back exclusive coverage. She's been covering the region from the ground, on the ground, for over 11 years. She has written for the Century Foundation, Al Monitor, News Deeply, Foreign Policy, among others. Lebanese journalist Nur Smeha from Beirut, welcome, and uh, thank you for being with me. Thanks for having me. Before we go on, I know we have a lot to cover. I want to start by offering a brief recap of events since 2011 that have kind of led to the to the current events taking place right now at the Arsal Barrens. So starting by March 2011, seven Estonian cyclists, if we remember, uh, were abducted by what was called Majlis Shura al-Mujahideen, which was the highest command council of Al-Qaeda in Syria and Iraq at the time. Around four months later, I think, they were freed with a ransom of around $4 million, all which reportedly went into arming Al-Qaeda in Syria. On the night of the 21st of November 2011, the Lebanese army intelligence entered the town of Arsal to, to arrest an Al-Qaeda member. The army's intelligence patrol was abducted by members of Al-Qaeda, which were present inside the town. The, the army patrol was only let free after intervention from the town's municipality head, Ali al-Hujayri. We heard back then from officials in the Lebanese state that the town of Arsal was being used as a gate to export arms and militants into Syria. This was back in 2011, chiefly into Homs and the Damascus countryside um, areas. So we jump into 2014. On the 2nd of August, the Lebanese army arrested uh, the leader of what was also called Liwa Fajr al-Islam, who had pledged allegiance to Daesh. His name was Ahmad Ahmad Jum'a. Daesh and Al-Qaeda responded by storming into the town of Arsal, fully occupying it and arresting around 40 soldiers at the time, both from the Lebanese army and the Lebanese internal security forces. Al-Qaeda beheaded one soldier during that battle. His name was Muhammad Hamiya. On the 9th of August, so around seven days later, the Lebanese army entered Arsal with full force this time, re-establishing control over its positions there and effectively kicking out Al-Qaeda and Daesh back into the outskirts of the town. In September of 2014, one month later, after the end of the Battle of Arsal, Al-Qaeda crucified a Syrian refugee in the area, accusing him of working with what they called, I mean, they published several photos of, of, the, of their crime, 
accusing him of what they called working with quote-unquote Iranian Hezbollah. In the same month, Al-Qaeda also killed a Lebanese civilian from Arsal named Kaydirdede, also with the accusation, but this time, of working with Lebanese army intelligence. Um, after around 16 months of failed negotiations between the Lebanese state and Al-Qaeda, Lebanon asked Qatar to enter the line as a mediator with Jabhat al-Nusra, Jabhat al-Nusra, the branch of Al-Qaeda in both Syria and Lebanon. On the 1st of December of 2015, a deal was achieved. Uh, Nusra freed 16 soldiers of the Lebanese internal security forces, while the Lebanese state freed and returned 13 Islamist prisoners. Five of them were women, uh, and among them was Sajad Dulaymi, if you remember, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's ex-wife. Abu Malik al-Talli, the, the Nusra emir or prince in Arsal and its outskirts, received around $24 million back then from Qatar. So Daesh had previously executed three Lebanese soldiers in its captivity. Those soldiers were Ali Sayyid, Ali al-Bazzal and Abbas Midlij. Daesh, till this day, still holds nine Lebanese army soldiers in its captivity. Their fate and their location is still unknown. On May of 2015, Hezbollah and the Lebanese army launched the Qalamun offensive, effectively securing the Lebanese-Syrian border and pushing what remained of Al-Qaeda and ISIS into the barrens of Arsal and Ras Balbek. They kicked him out of the town. In the early of 2016, negotiations between the Lebanese state and Nusra took off again, but this time concerning their evacuation completely either into Turkey or into Idlib. Up until around 10 days ago, nothing major has happened, uh, neither concerning Lebanese soldiers um, with with Daesh, nor concerning the existence of both Al-Qaeda and ISIS as occupying forces of Lebanese territory. Nor what has happened in the last 10 days concerning the occupying forces of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. What, what has been happening? What is going on? Well, in the last 10 days, uh, there's been a new offensive that's been launched uh, by Hezbollah, but in partnership with the Lebanese army and with the Syrian army uh, on the Syrian side. Um, and the operation was basically to uh, to clear the uh, the outskirts of Azzel, um of Nusra and other militants, uh, basically to, to completely push them out or, or to get them to, to agree to a deal which we see them leave the area. Um, and that's proven to be successful. And um, and now we're basically seeing the the uh, um, uh, Nusra and uh, and other militants uh, agreeing with um, with Hezbollah, the Lebanese army, to be evacuated to uh, Idlib. Um, and uh, from me, what we've seen is at least uh, 26 Hezbollah fighters have been killed, and uh, several hundred. Uh, militants Nusra and, uh, and other groups have been killed in this operation. And um, and then now we're about to see the, the start of a new operation, and that's in the Al-Qaar area, where the Lebanese army will be leading the battle against, uh, against ISIS in the area. Yes. Um, okay, if Al-Qaeda and ISIS have been occupying Lebanese territory for this long, why is the operation happening now? What about the timing? Why not earlier? Why now? Well, I mean, part of this is to do with, with uh, logistics and strategy. And I mean, at point you would have to ask the Hezbollah command the operation rooms as to why they decided to do this now. 
But um, but I mean, battles can't be can't be decided one day to the next. It takes uh, it takes training, it takes planning, it takes um, under the geography and the area and the situation. And and um, and I think also a lot of it is is to do with um, with what's conducive at this time. I mean, we have to look. We have to look just a bit beyond Arsal and what what's the Lebanese situation, what's the Syrian situation, what's Hezbollah's situation. So how occupied or preoccupied has Hezbollah been um, in in other areas in Syria, um, and what has allowed it to do the operation now? And some people, for example, would say that the fact that you've seen a ceasefire in southern Syria has allowed some of Hezbollah's uh, members to threaten to maybe join part of the battle in Arsal. I mean, at this point, it, it, I think you're you're more likely to get a, a, a straighter answer from Hezbollah than from me on this. Yeah, uh, um, we heard that the negotiations with uh, with Abu Malik al the Nusra prince, have previously failed because he demanded uh, impossible demands, if I can call them, where he wanted to be evacuated uh, in closed vehicles without anybody inspecting what's inside, and there were several reports that. What what was being transferred was the money that he has previously uh, acquired through the exchange deal, but there were other reports that he may have had uh, Lebanese soldiers with him. But we know that the Lebanese soldiers are with ISIS and not with with uh, Al Qaeda. Uh, the Lebanese state did not agree to those demands because nobody guarantees that he has no Lebanese soldiers. I mean, if the story was just about the money, then probably. Uh, that that would have been solved easily. So going back to the ISIS operation, uh, is there any specific date? Uh, what are the details? How how is that gonna form? I mean, with regards to the ISIS operation, um, I think all we know at the moment is that the the offensive is going to be starting within within the next day. So. Um, and the details. I mean, I think. I think if anyone says that they have the details of what this operation looks like, they'd be lying because um, military operations are not successful if uh, if the details are all out in public. Um, but what we do know is that uh, this this offensive will be led by, um, unlike the Arsal uh, offensive, which was led by Hezbollah, um, and that the it's going to be led uh, by the army. The area, yes led by the Lebanese army. At least this is what reports are saying and this is what some of the sources are saying. Uh, um, obviously, we'll have to see what happens on the ground. It's very difficult to, to be able to assess the success or um, or the difficulties of the battle without uh, without seeing how it plays out. Um, but, I mean, in terms of what we know is that, the, uh, that there were thousands of, um, of Nusra militants to the Arsal battle, whereas we've heard that there, there are several hundred of ISIS uh, fighters uh, in this one. Um, but the space, obviously, that this is going to be taking place on is much bigger uh, outside, on the outskirts of Al-Qaeda and al whereas in Al-Qaeda, the area was much, uh, was much tighter. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, we're going to have to wait and see what happens over the next few days. Um, and with regards to the negotiations, I don't, I, I don't know if we can, if we can say that uh, the same thing will be happening with ISIS. Obviously, we have not any soldiers that are being held by ISIS, but I mean, negotiations has always been taking place with Nusra from, from the start uh, when it comes to exchanging prisoners. Um, they have been taking and, place and we, since before the uh, the Four Towns deal, right? Madaya, Zabadani, Kefari, and Fua. Before Syria, that. Definitely, definitely. We've been seeing it across Syria. And, and I mean, I, I mean, a lot of people, I think, would, would you know, say that you don't negotiate with a terrorist organization or you don't negotiate with, with, uh, 
group like this. But I mean, at the end of the day, this is this is a war, and, and this is expected to happen. Um, and I think that the terms uh, of of Nusra were eventually well. I mean, they were eventually talked down, um, and this is partly why was successful mm. because the Lebanese army and Hezbollah were in a much more advantageous position to be able to negotiate because Nusra was much weaker than it was a year ago or two years ago. Um, but again, with the situation with ISIS... They were besieged, right? Very- they had no entries, yeah. no exits. Yeah, yeah, they were they were completely besieged and, and creating a huge a huge problem and a humanitarian problem for Arsene as well. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, And this is becoming uh, politically um, unsustainable uh, for Lebanon. I mean, there's only so much that, that Arsal as a town can handle with regards to the influx of refugees and, and, and you know, the, the, the thousands that they're hosting. And then to also have to, uh, to deal with the fact that you've got uh, militants that are coming in and out and abusing um, this, this, uh, this haven that's been created. So, so no, this is why the operation proved to be successful. With ISIS and Al-Qaeda, I, I, I think it's too early to tell what, what, what the possibilities are, what sort of outcome can happen. Uh, there are no refugees in the areas controlled by ISIS, right? Not as far as I know. Mm. Uh, coming back to the past operation, we heard that there was a refugee camp in Wadi Hamayyid, which was inside the outskirts, which... Uh, which hosted the families of some of Al-Qaeda fighters there who would usually visit their families and then go back to the front lines. This is um, ignoring the other refugees who are inside the town of Arsal. Official estimates by the Lebanese state, by the Lebanese interior minister, put the numbers of refugees in the entire area at around 100,000 refugees. That is, I think, that is three times more than, than what is in Canada right now in terms of refugees and it is much more it's i think double the population of arsal itself so obviously the town is under a lot of pressure but arsal's people i mean they're thanked obviously for hosting too many refugees and they never complained i think the, they're at the point now where they're just extremely tired of the situation security wise and they want to go back to their to their fields they want to go back to their work which is mainly in the outskirts area and al-qaeda prevents them from going there so economically this is not being um, beneficial to to the residents of arsal because there are a lot of reports that the people of arsal have been sympathetic since the start to those militants i mean there might be a couple individuals but it's unfair to generalize and uh, it's clear that the people of arsal just want to be done once and for all okay i think i think the situation and the and the refugee situation is an incredibly complex one and i think unfortunately the media has has over the years simplified it to the point of you know an isis town or this is an, an al-qaeda town or these are al-qaeda sympathizers and that's obviously not the case you're a cell the beginning has opened its, its arms out to the refugees and welcomed. I think you're right. Yeah, I think it's double the size of uh, double the numbers of, of uh, Syrians that there are now in Arsal than, than than local population. But I think even in terms of, of the refugees, you have to also bear in Arsal has, in some way, for the last year or two years, almost been under siege. I mean, it's not easy to come in and out of Arsal. Mm. Uh, you know, the army has completely surrounded it because of the fact that uh, you know militants have used Arsal as a safe haven. Uh, but that's not to say that Arsal town has been hosting people. Uh, I think what we've seen is that in some well, militant manners that they've been able to to uh, infiltrate these refugee camps because, as you said, families these their families in these areas. 
Um, and, you know, obviously refugees can't just push these people out. And, um, and the resources available to the people of Azal are so limited that there's only, you know, there's only so much that they can do as well. Yeah, and the Lebanese so state got, isn't doing any good job helping well, no, them anyway. Yeah. After, after the battle that happened in, in 2014, you, you did see um, the militants leave the town of Azal and move towards the outskirts. Um, and then their families did, did reign within, you know, in that in that middle area, yeah, if you yeah. want, between between the town and the outskirts, because you know, obviously, they're refugees and their and their and their women and children. It became this very delicate balance um, between uh, basically, you know, the 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 country's vulnerable population um, and militants essentially holding them hostage because there's there's little that they can do with the fact that you know that there's, there are these armed people moving around in like, their areas. Um, so I think I think what we have to be careful about is that we shouldn't be generalizing and saying that you know like all of the all of the people in Azal support Al Qaeda or like all of the refugees support the militants. I, I really don't think that that's the case. Absolutely. Um, and I think we also we also ignore the fact that many of the many, like refugees in Lebanon have been treated very badly. So what we are seeing is that a lot of people have been um, have been returning back to their homes uh, or returning back to their areas in. Uh, through negotiation and through what what has been called for what's been dubbed as local reconciliation. Mm. Um, and I think that, and yes, they are returning to areas that are under government control. And, you know, a lot of people are, are saying that this is basically from one prison to another. But I think for a lot of these refugees, the idea of returning to their homes, um, it, even if it is under government control, is at least a better option than staying in in Ola, which is basically how they've been living in Lebanon. Mm. Um, Especially, I think, for so, the people in Wadi Hamayid right now, after the deal, they're going to go back to their homes in Qalamun, right? I mean, would you rather definitely. be under the Syrian government or, or Al-Qaeda? I, I don't think that's don't a question. Know. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe in that area, Al-Qaeda treated them really well. I, I don't know, but um, but um, I think I think essentially people are very sick and tired of living in tents and and are be and sick and tired of being stigmatized and, and sick and tired of being uh, abused by the Lebanese. Mm. Um, I think uh, you know the fact that these people have been living in Lebanon pretty quietly for the last six years should be an indication that, you know, they haven't, uh, they haven't done anything against the Syrian government, nor have they done anything against the, against the Lebanese state. Um, and that, you know, they sort of just want to get on with their lives and raise their families and, and make a livelihood and that's it. Uh, I think what we, hopefully what we can see in the, in the next, in the coming months and years is, is a return of refugees to, uh, to their homes where they, where they had originally fled from. Yeah. We heard that the advances made by Hezbollah were really fast. Uh, it was kind of shocking, I think, to everybody how fast the operation ended. Um, people were expecting that it would go on for months. Uh, is it true that the Lebanese army was coordinating directly with Hezbollah during that battle? And what role did the army had specifically? Um, yes, I, I mean, I think it's very clear that the Lebanese army and Hezbollah were coordinating directly. Were they sharing the separation room? I don't know. Um, but of course they were coordinating. You have to, I mean, if you're going to be working on such a precise military operation uh, or military offensive, of course you have to coordinate. Um, and don't forget, as well, the Syrian army was also involved in this. Uh, you were seeing strikes yeah. of Syrian air, air, air jet, uh, airplanes um, uh, throughout the operation, especially on the Syrian side. Um, So this so means the Lebanese army was also, I mean, de facto operating with the Syrian army on the ground, right? Because 
It's one battle. Uh, look, I don't know. I don't know how that works on 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 the ground. Like mm-hmm. I said, I don't think you know the three of them are sitting there in the same operation room. Yeah, yeah. Um, but is the Lebanese army coordinating with Hezbollah, who then coordinates with the Syrians? Yeah, I mean that's what I think is the likely scenario. If they're not coordinating directly, you know. Mm. Um, but basically, what we saw in the operation was Hezbollah was leading the fight. You saw the the army basically. Uh, serve as the defense line after Arsal town and then Hezbollah leading the battle in the outskirts. Mm. So there was, there was very, there was actually, from what I understand, there was no contact between Hezbollah and, and the, and the town of Arsal, mm. uh, nor the refugee camps because the battle was taking place, uh, you know, several kilometers away from these areas. Yeah. The Lebanese army remained in that area and took on a very defensive position, you know, to prevent the militants from from returning back to. They stopped to several the infiltrations, to, I think, the on the on the 23rd and 24th. Yeah. There were Al Qaeda attempts of re-entering the town because I think Abu Malik Tali um, believes that if he reinvades Arsal, then he could have a stronger position and then he would have the upper hand in negotiations and we would go back to 2014 all over again. And the the Lebanese army pretty much prevented that. Yes, I mean, if he was if he had been able to re-enter Arsal, it would be a very messy situation. The army would not want to, you know, you don't want to start shelling a town of like a hundred thousand people. Yeah. Um, Hezbollah, obviously, you know, it, it would be a it would be a complete. Uh, it, it, I mean, Hezbollah wouldn't be able to enter the town. You know, the people of Arsal wouldn't want Hezbollah to enter the town. Um, and politically, it would be a it would be a mess because you know then then you're entering into into a whole other complication of, you know, Hezbollah's role and what they're doing and are they taking over and what does this mean? And so, yeah. no, like, Abu Malik would have been very, it was a very smart idea of his, which I think we should all be glad didn't see any fruition. <laughs> okay. We heard a lot of voices from inside and outside the country that by cooperating with, with Hezbollah, the Lebanese army is drawing some distance with a great portion of the Lebanese people who do not believe in Hezbollah's quote-unquote project or they don't legitimize their arms. Uh, do you believe that the overall impact of this operation has been positive, negative on the Lebanese public? Would you say it has actually alienated Lebanese citizens from the army for cooperating with Hezbollah? I mean, we saw a lot of celebrities who were previously not in line with Hezbollah's um, political project in Lebanon. Uh, we saw them cheer for the operation. We saw them agree to the martyrs. What, what do you think is the overall reaction? What, what has it been? I think, I think we, have to, we have to be able to take it for what it is and not, and not take it any further than that. I think, yes, we have seen a lot of people who, you know, generally or traditionally are anti-Hezbollah, um, come out and show their support and, you know, pay their condolences for uh, the fighters who, who were killed. But I don't think that this necessarily translates to uh, these people are now supporters of Hezbollah. Hmm. Um, so I they won't be voting for them next elections. They're just... It's, I, I, don't even think it, I don't even think it, it needs to... Well, I mean, they, they wouldn't need to because I don't think they come from the areas in which Hezbollah uh. is standing. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. We see them but I mean, I think I don't think you're suddenly going to see like you know the population turn around and be like, oh my God, Hezbollah is amazing because they did this. What you will see is people acknowledge Hezbollah's role and and acknowledge the fact that yes, we wouldn't have been able to achieve what we what we have as a as a country if it wasn't for what Hezbollah has done on the borders. Mm. But does this mean they're suddenly going to be okay with what Hezbollah is doing in Syria? No. Does it mean that they're going to be okay with with how much power Hezbollah has in the government? No. But it does mean that they recognise that. Lebanon as a state has an army that has been 
um, disabled considerably by foreign powers to prevent it from being uh, a strong um, force can defend its borders and therefore we've had to rely on a non-state actor yeah. which is Hezbollah mm. um, to be able to defend our borders and this is I think this this is an argument that we will be seeing more and more and this is an argument that Hezbollah's adversaries will be using in order to boost um, to boost aid and uh, and training and uh, and projects with the Lebanese army mm. for the Lebanese state isn't a bad thing um, does this mean we're going to see people like, uh, does this mean that we're going to see people call for, for Hezbollah's weapons to be removed? I mean, we've always seen this. Yeah, it's um, not real, And yeah. I think what, what, what this operation has shown um, is that uh, Hezbollah's weapons have been useful for the Lebanese state in this instance. In this, in, I mean, obviously, we're, we're, I'm, I'm talking 2006 onwards. Mm. I, I actually, what I think is, is you'll see, you'll see it's adversaries like Jumbla, like Jaja, you know, begrudgingly admit that Hezbollah played a very significant role, and if it wasn't for Hezbollah, we would, you know, we would still have like Nusra and, and ISIS on, on our borders. But you're not going to suddenly see them jumping ship and, you know, start shouting, you know, and you know, this is amazing. And mm, we uh, saw yesterday, Jumbla tweeted out a salutation to the Hezbollah martyrs, which is the first, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't think that I don't think that politically. I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, you have to also look at his position politically, yeah. um, and he will end up doing whatever is necessary to to secure his own position. If that means, you know, like uh, um, lying himself with Hezbollah at this moment, then he'll do that. Mm. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I don't think I don't think we're going to suddenly see a shift uh, in the population from uh, from anti Hezbollah to pro Hezbollah. Mm. Um, there is a genuine fear within the country that that uh, Hezbollah is um, is too powerful for 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 our political system. Mm. Um, whether that that fear is uh, is founded or not is a completely different story. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, going back to your original question, yeah, I do think um, I do think people are recognizing Hezbollah's role and uh, and the need for Hezbollah to defend its borders, uh, to defend our borders. Um, but then again, the question comes back to: Well, now that that has happened, what next? Yeah, uh, you mentioned two thousand six. If we go back yeah. to to the war, to the July war in two thousand six against Israel, uh, if we remember, not all of Lebanon was targeted. I mean, there were specific areas that were hit by Israel. So central Beirut was kept on the on the margin. Uh, the north, generally um, excluding Bekaa, was not targeted. And so you could tell that some portion of the Lebanese um, public was not affected directly by by the Israeli war. So you could say that um, they weren't specifically sympathizing with Hezb. I mean, we saw political parties inside Lebanon rallied against Hezb during the war. So the situation now uh, seems to be a lot more different because all of Lebanon is targeted by those suicide bombers and by bombs. Christian areas, uh, central Beirut, Hamra, um, Jbeil, every, everywhere is a target, which I think translates on the ground with more support for Hezeb. I don't know. I think I'd actually have to disagree if it translates that there'd be more support for Hezeb. In, um, in this battle, I, I mean, not generally. Or at least um, um, deeming them or seeing them as at least defending the country because this was occupied land that they were liberating it's it's not their their actions in syria now it's inside lebanon 
Yes, but I think I think the argument will always come back to well, if Hezbollah hadn't gone into Syria, and you hear this all the time, mm. if Hezbollah hadn't gone into Syria, then you wouldn't be seeing this this reaction in Lebanon, which I also think is a false narrative because it doesn't explain why you've seen like suicide bombers in Turkey, why you've seen. Do you know what I mean? But and, like, even Hezbollah, but even before Hezbollah's um, involvement in Syria, Al Qaeda was already in Lebanon. I mean, this isn't new. We had the Nahr al Barid battles. We had the Al Hilwi battles. Al Qaeda is already there and. We know that they were planning to hit Lebanon, whether Hezbollah got involved or not. So, but but these are these are just these are just talking points and these are just narratives. People who are ideologically opposed to Hezbollah will always be ideologically opposed to Hezbollah, and they will use mm. whatever situation or scenario has been taking place in the country to to push that forward. Um, and and again, I mean, like these are these are arguments that end up going around in circles. Uh, whether you're pro Hezbollah or anti Hezbollah, there will always be you know the same talking points that always come up. Um, but what? Yes, no. You will see people now acknowledging that Hezbollah, ha- you know, played a a positive role on the borders. Um, but then at the same time, this is also why you're seeing. Uh, foreign governments like the U.S., like the Brits, you know, really rush forward to try and bolster the Lebanese army because they don't want to see Hezbollah regaining any sort of support or even becoming stronger and placing its its uh, its fighters as border patrol. Um, Hezbollah doesn't seem to have a problem with this, right? I mean, they're all for arming the the army, or at least that's what they say. Well, of course. Of course, and and I think Hezbollah has better things to do than 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 work as border patrol in Kalamun. Um, so no, it definitely it, it benefits everyone at that point. It benefits the Lebanese army, it benefits the Lebanese state, and it also benefits Hezbollah. Mm. Hezbollah's look. I mean, if we if we go back to the, the essence of what Hezbollah's about, Hezbollah's essence is is you know its fight against Israel. Yeah. Um, so if if bolstering the army means that you will see the army, um, you know, being the sole. Uh, liberators of, of Lebanese territory and on on its uh, you know on on its uh, borders with Syria, then at least that enables Hezbollah to, to concentrate you know, to and focus, focus on, on Israel. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So I mean, again, like these reports, I've read reports about how uh, you know the Hezbollah is against the idea of uh, of the army receiving weapons and, and aid from from foreign governments. I think is laughable because it, it in, indirectly it also helps Hezbollah. Yeah. Okay, uh, so moving to Syria, uh, you wrote yes. an article for New Zeeply, I think, uh, Israel's quiet campaign to gain a foothold in, in southern Syria. Uh, in your article, you mentioned the type of cooperation uh, that has been going on with the Syrian opposition and Israel in southern Syria from 2012 uh, till today. Tell us more about this in terms of initial contacts, um, aid and treatment, who receives the treatment? We heard reports about proposals for adoption of Syrian kids. Tell us more about the situation there. Um, I think, I mean, honestly th- speaking, I think that the best comparison is is what, uh, like, what Israel is doing now in southern Syria. It, it did in Lebanon um, mm. at the beginning of the war, which you mentioned um, in your article as well. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, like now they're calling it Operation Good Neighbor, mm. um, and in Lebanon called it the good fence policy mm. um, and the idea is basically to create a, a um, an environment where the local population um, becomes pro-Israeli mm. uh, and so in Syria they started look in Syria they at the beginning they were watching how things how things were playing let's not forget that in Syria um, the uh, the northern border between Israel and Syria has been very quiet for the last 40 years mm. um, 
you know, that you haven't seen any attacks. You haven't. Seen, it hasn't been volatile in the same way that it has been in Lebanon. Yeah. Um, so the Syrian, so, so the Israeli government didn't have an issue with the Syrian government being on its borders. Um, when it started to have an issue is obviously when it when it saw how how involved uh, Hezbollah started to get in helping the Syrians. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it also saw that the militants that were uh, that that had taken over in the area also didn't have an interest in attacking Israel. So as far as Israel is concerned, you're going to start working with the people um, that can that can basically operate as your sandbags. Mm. Like Israel doesn't need to put its its troops on the ground when it has its own. Uh, when it has an Israeli-friendly um, proxy force that works in the area, like so, the Southern Lebanese Army in Lebanon, the SLA. Like the, SLA. The, difference, the difference as well is in I think what it learned from its mistakes in Lebanon is that in Lebanon, obviously, you saw Israeli boots on the ground. Like mm. the Israelis, you know, had their had their uh, checkpoints and their army posts, and you know, they they, they were reached very, Beirut. Very, yeah, yeah, they reached Beirut. Um, but in Syria, it, and that's incredibly costly. So in Syria, you're not going to necessarily have troops like wandering around Quneitra. Mm. What you're basically going to see is you're going to see um, a huge influx of aid and equipment. And uh, and when I say aid and equipment, I don't necessarily mean just military mi- military equipment. I'm talking um, piping. I'm talking cement. I'm talking educational materials. I'm talking, you know, uh, training for schools and nurses and you know, every, anything that that um, the entire community. A, a, yeah, that, that society or community needs in order to uh, to continue living and 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 uh, you know and living day to day. And when you have a, a community that's that's dependent on you for these um, for these uh, uh, goods and aid, um, you have a society that uh, that will essentially be your friend. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, at the same time, you can't necessarily blame those that are living in opposition areas that are receiving Israeli aid because you know when when you're not getting anything else, when you're not getting anything from the Jordanian side where they shut the borders, um, and you know your child, you know has some sort of illness and there's no adequate medication or, or medical aid available available to you what are you going to turn around and say no i don't want to take it from the israelis uh, i don't like, uh, i mean you, you know, i think you know i'm going to disagree well. with you on this because um i don't believe anybody should cooperate with israel under any circumstances <laughs> but <laughs> you have to also this, this big becomes much bigger than than just uh uh that area this is not just about creating an Israeli friendly, you know, to prevent Hezbollah or the Syrian army from, mm-hmm. you know, like getting a foothold in the area. This is also about the Israeli claim on the Golan Heights. Mm. Now let's not forget that like since 1967, the Israelis have been occupying part of the Golan Heights. Um, and they consider it to be Israeli territory. So they essentially annexed it. Um, which is not recognized by the international community. Yeah. Now, for the last three years, you're seeing in Israeli media and from Israeli officials, them talking more and more about uh, international recognition of the Golan Heights. And the argument that they say is, you know, like things are so unstable in Syria and you have no idea what's going on. And, you know, you've got ISIS on the doorsteps. And if we didn't take if we didn't take the Golan, then ISIS would, you know, be dipping its feet uh, in Lake Galilee. And um, so their argument is that we need to, you know, we should make, we should keep the Golan Heights because we have no idea what's happening with Syria. And so by creating this buffer zone, you're basically preventing the Syrian government from not just reclaiming 
um, the Golan Heights. But even reclaiming any sort of area, that even though it's Syrian territory, um, that is anywhere near the, the Golan Heights. Mm. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And I mean, this, this argument proved to be false, I think, later on, because um, ISIS has some presence in southern Syria, and we didn't see them attacking Israel in any sort of way over the past years. Oh, no, definitely, definitely. Um, it, it, like ISIS has a presence in, uh, in the Yermuk Basin. Mm. Um, and, you know, they have a very, they, there's like some sort of like tacit understanding between the Israelis and, and themselves that, uh, that you're not going to see attacks happening. So, mm. I mean, ISIS could, might as well be dipping their feet in the Galilee at the moment because it, it makes no difference to the Israelis. Yeah. Um, up until last April, I think, Israeli leading papers were insisting that Israel has remained on the sidelines in Syria despite conducting over 50 airstrikes, I think, against government forces uh, and what it claims to be Hezbollah weaponry convoys. Uh, you mentioned in your article, however, that Israel is creating its own faction in Syria. Uh, tell us more about this group. I actually find that line really funny because it, they didn't, it's not up until they're still saying it today that, you know, even though Israel is the sidelines of this war, blah, 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 this is what they're doing. Mm. And I mean, it, it's laughable because Israel is, is just as much of a, of a player in the Syrian war as any other foreign player, mm. um, if not more in some sense because of how involved they are. Um, the Israelis have been working closely with the different armed factions in this in the op in the opposition areas in the south mm -hmm. they've been providing like i said an array of aid um and they've now been working very closely with this group um called fursan uh, al which is the the golan knights mm. uh which is based in uh, jabat al khashab um and they're a, they're an israeli proxy and and they say they are as well they say that they receive aid from the israelis that they, they receive money and and equipment and so forth um and it's I a mean, small this, group right think, um compared to the others it's small group. yeah we're talking like a couple of hundred several hundred fighters we're not mm. talking anything massive um and they don't and they don't gel that well with with the other factions but at the same time there you're not seeing like uh, you're not seeing regular clashes between them and others. So obviously there's some sort of cooperation as well. Mm. Um, and, and the other groups are, and listen, I mean, like I've, I've spoken, I have an array of, of, uh, of opposition sources in that area. Um, and I've spoken to, to people who, who don't have an issue with receiving aid from the Israelis, because oh. as far as they're concerned, um, you know, Israel is fighting the same enemy. Israel is fighting uh, Assad and Hezbollah and, and the Iranians, and, and that's what they're fighting as well. Mm. And uh, and so, no, I mean, like this idea that that, that uh, Israel is on the sidelines is 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 laughable. And also, let's not ignore the fact they're not just sitting Hezbollah convoys or what they say are Hezbollah convoys. In the last uh, in June, you saw when there was a government offensive, and I mean, actually, what you're seeing is they're becoming much more brazen about it as well. Like at the beginning, mm. in, in the last three, four years, you've seen the odd Israeli airstrike when, you know, there have been offensives. And, you know, if you say that they're doing it to help the opposition, then you're, you're accused of being a conspiracy theorist. I think June is is one of the the few examples where, where the Israelis have just been completely brazen about it. It became, it got to a point where you would, so basically what happened was the government launched an offensive uh, around Medina al-Ba'ath area to reclaim territory. Yeah. Um, and the opposition... Uh, attempted to move forward. And actually, no, at the same time was in another area of Kunaitra, you saw the opposition also launch an offensive. Um, and this was happening at the same time as the Dera offensive. Mm. And it was basically to try and weaken the army on two fronts. 
So what you saw in one area was that where there were battles between the, the Syrian army and the opposition, um, you would suddenly start seeing Israeli airstrikes. And, and it got to a point where you would hear reports of uh, errant shelling lands in the occupied Golan mm. in a field and no one is hurt. And then suddenly you would see within an hour Israeli airstrike on army targets uh, in Medin Tlbaat. Yeah, it was um, happening on a weekly basis then, I think. It wasn't weekly, Ali. It was happening daily. Uh. It was happening on basis. And I think it took place <laughs> literally over the week. It was, it was, yeah, it was incredibly brazen and blatant and i mean at that point i, I think even even the israelis were sort of like yeah this is happening do you know what i mean it was uh it was uh it was unfounded in in how obvious it was mm-hmm. uh, and, and again from the opposition from the opposition sources that i've spoken to they'll sit there there and they'll say no there hasn't been any coordination between the israelis and the and, and the syrian opposition but you know we we didn't mind what they did Mm. Um, which, <laughs> yeah, it's okay if they do it, but we we don't cooperate with them. Basically. Uh, so politically, uh, in this area, among the Syrian opposition, uh, we heard voices as well by politicians, by diplomats, uh, where they actually not only cheered on the Israeli airstrikes, like you've mentioned, but uh, actually asking for them at some point. Yeah, I mean, you see it. Look, it depends on how much, like how how much weight you put on Twitter, mm. like on on these Twitter activists and these Twitter voices, and how relevant they are to real life. But yes, obviously, you did see a lot of you know Syrian opposition supporters and activists and uh, and uh, members uh, cheer on Israeli strikes on 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 Syrian territory. Um, and I think that that actually says more about. Um, about how uh, about the situation today not vis-a-vis Syria but just in terms of you know like how where Arabs stand when it vis-a-vis Israel um, but but like going back to the idea of Israel cooperating with with, uh, with Syrians or vice versa um, you do see um, several members of the Syrian opposition mm-hmm. um, you know like coordinate not, and I'm not talking militarily I'm talking now on, on the political front mm. you know coordinate and and uh, and have relations with the uh, with Israel mm. um, and their their point is that you know Israel you know shouldn't be seen as an enemy and we've been brainwashed for the last 50 years into thinking <laughs> that the Israelis are an enemy you know and actually what the Israelis are doing they're helping us and you know they're helping us more than even our Arab brothers are helping us um and therefore we should be working with them and you know what like we can figure out a deal when it comes to the Golan don't worry about it but like let's you know like let's work with the Israelis and you've seen Syrian opposition members going and and paying visits and, and doing talks and sitting with Israel with Israeli um with Israeli officials in in Israel yeah um, uh, Isam Zaytoun has done it. uh Kamal Labwani has done it Fahd um, al-Masri and I think they're Sorry? Fahd al-Masri, the National Salvation Front leader. I, I don't, to be fair, I don't actually know if he's been to Israel, but obviously he's been, he's been at the forefront. He's released several uh, manifestos and statements and declarations. Mm. And publicly about calling peace for with Israeli intervention. Publicly calling for Israeli intervention, publicly calling for, for relations between Israel and Syria. And, you know, part of his manifesto is precisely that, mm. that, you know, in the new Syria, we will see, you know, like a, uh, Uh, peaceful relations between Israel and Syria. And, and I think, you know, like politically, this is something that, that you know, some opposition members are definitely trying to, to push forward because they see that, uh, you know, they can possibly gain favor with the Israelis and therefore with Israel's allies. And, you know, that puts them in a, 
in um, in a prominent position when it comes to you know like trying to uh, support. Does Israel believe a future Syria ruled by these groups will recognize its alleged um, sovereignty over the Golan Heights? Uh, if not, what does Israel then seek to accomplish by aiding them? And does Israel truly prefer them to the Syrian government, or does it just only seek more chaos and, and destruction? Look, Israel wants two things. It wants to keep the Golan Heights and it wants a weak Syria. Mm. Uh, three things. And, and, and obviously it wants to get rid of Hezbollah and the Iranians. Um, and so, no, I don't think... I don't, and I, I mean, you can read this from like Israeli intelligence reports. You can read this from like Israeli analyses. Uh, they don't want to see, um, you know, an array of uh, opposition groups who, you know, like change their their names every couple of years and change their leaders and all of this. They don't want to see something like that ruling Damascus and therefore being in charge of Syria because that basically brings in more chaos. They want to see a very weak state. Um, they want to see a very weak government. They want to see a very weak Assad or whoever whoever will end up ruling Syria. But they want it to be weak enough that they can, you know, that they don't have that they're not in a position to to negotiate anything on the Golan. And the Israelis want to make sure that whatever solution, um, political solution, comes out in Syria, whether it's now or in 10 years or in 15 years, the Israelis will have a say um, in how that will look. And and you're sort of seeing that with. You know, for example, the current ceasefire that came out in the south. Mm. Um, you know, even if the Israelis were not involved directly in the negotiations, they were being consulted constantly, mm-hmm. um, and they very clear that they do want to be. You know, that they want to be involved some way or another in in whatever outcome happens in Syria. Um, and so, the way that they see it right now, in the short term, at least, you know, it. Well, in the long term, they're hoping to have this Israeli-friendly society in this safe zone that they've created. Term that you know they're they're more than happy cooperating and and, and working with and paying groups um, that uh, that will do their bidding on the ground, which is to keep the Syrian army and Hezbollah and, and the Syrian government's allies um, as far away from its borders as possible. Um, but no, essentially, they don't want to see like uh, you know Abu Hamad al-Jolani uh, ruling the map. <laughs> They yeah. just want to see it. So they, they prefer the current Syrian state, a weak state, to the unknown. They prefer it over that, right? Because, I mean, they don't know what yeah, will happen if, if Bashar leaves. But let's not forget that but they want a weak state without Iranian influence. So, I mean, mm. like, at the moment, they're being, they're being very fussy about what they that's want. That's really impossible. Like, oh, no, of course. Of course. Like, you either have, you know, you either end up well i mean who knows what's going to happen in the end but i mean yeah you can't have you can't have a weakness right now mm. um without a level of iranian influence because obviously the iranians are part of the um a part of the the team that's helping keep uh, damascus where it is to mm. help keep the government where it is Absolutely. so yeah no so the Israelis, you know we'll we'll have to we'll have to figure out how to deal with that in the future i think we should wrap it up Uh, I just want to finish by congratulating you and myself on the Lebanese victory <laughs> over Al-Qaeda. I mean, it, it truly is a victory, no matter what anybody says. Uh, if you have yeah. any final words. No, thank you very much for, uh, for allowing me to be your first guest on this show. Thank you for being with me. It was a pleasure, really. It was a pleasure too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Before I leave you guys, I just want to mention the two of the four weekly episodes every month are going to be premium subscriber-only episodes, which will be available through the show's Patreon page for a monthly subscription of as little as $5. 
This is an individual effort that I'm doing, um, bringing all these special guests, and I hope through your support, I could continue to do this show. After over 30 bombings and hundreds of civilian martyrs over the past six years, I want again to congratulate the Lebanese people today, all of Lebanon, uh, despite what political differences we might have on this historic victory against terror. Yeah. 